All right, maybe grab your seats. Early in uh, the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we, we see this scene play out that, uh, that takes place. Jesus had met with John the Baptist and uh, had been baptized in the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit then descended upon him like a dove, and, uh, and God declared, this is my son. Uh, this is the Messiah. This is the deliverer who's finally come. And so it's this like really big deal moment, okay, where it's kind of like, okay, here we go. So what would make sense at that point, you know, Jesus has shown up on the scene, and if anybody would think anything, the world needs more Jesus, right? And so Jesus shows up in the scene, God declares, this is my son, here we go, this is what we need to do. All right, let's put the team together. Let's assemble the team, here's the marching orders, here's all these different things that we need to be doing, and that's what would make sense in Ridge Doring's brain. That's how my mind operates. Uh, so that would be the next logical move, but instead what we have is Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Of course. With so much to do, let's take a 40-day break. So that's, that's what takes place. Now, what follows that is Jesus listen closely, turning from one thing that's being offered to him and instead completely turning in a different direction and embracing something totally different, something else. Uh, so we're not going to go into all the full details of this, but for 40 days, Jesus fasted. He didn't eat. And uh, the tempter comes, Satan comes at that point. It begins to offer him these temptations, these three different scenarios. The first one is, you know, hey, Jesus, you're you're kind of a big deal. I think you know that, right? You're kind of a big deal. And man, 40 days, you haven't eaten anything? You got a lot, of, you got a lot going for you. So man, you owe it to yourself. See, there, I mean, eat something. You look, you lost some weight, all that kind of stuff. Look, here's some rocks here. Turn them into bread. Give yourself some nourishment. Take advantage of, of who you are. Assert yourself. You deserve it after all. I mean, look at, look at what you've done. You deserve this. To which Jesus resists that temptation to use his power to gratify himself. He resists that. So next, the tempter uh, shows Jesus the holy city, Jerusalem. And he kind of takes him and whisks him away to the very, very top, the, the tallest portion of the temple, the holy site in Jerusalem. Takes him to the top of the temple and says, look, big announcements are a big deal. And everybody should know that you're here. Everybody should know what you're about. And so, why don't you just jump? Jump and show everybody who you really are. Make a, make a big entrance. At which point, Jesus resists publicizing his power in order to get him attention and a following. And so finally, then, the tempter takes him to the top of a really tall mountain. He kind of lays out the entire world, all the kingdoms of this world, all the seats of power all of the things, and, and the tempter kind of says, you know, you are a big deal, but I'm kind of a big deal too. So why don't we like lock arms? and Let's do this together. Let's do this together. All of this, hey man, that, that's yours for the taking. Let's, let's join hands and do this together. At which point Satan uh, backs off because Jesus resists that temptation to play to temporary power. 
He had the long game in view. So he broke his fast, got up, left the wilderness, and embraced something 100% opposite of everything he had just been tempted to grab onto. He did a pivot, and he grabbed onto suffering. Instead, he turned and he embraced suffering. So in our series on the Apostles' Creed, uh, our focus has been on what has united us, united Christians through the ages. Uh, In the creed, there's more that we have in common than what divides us as followers of Jesus. So the question, really, as we've looked at the Apostles' Creed and we're looking at as we go through this, is what do we have? What do we have as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I? What do we have that we're declaring that we have when we recite the Apostles' Creed? The answer the first week was we've got a loving Father who welcomes us home. That's who we have. A loving Father, Creator, Almighty, who welcomes us home. And last week, Pastor Ben did a really good job laying out and sharing with us that the way home is Jesus. So we have a loving Father who welcomes us home, and the way home is through Jesus Christ. And this week, we discover that the way home for us through Jesus Christ came by way of suffering. That's how it happened, through suffering. What we have, what we have, as we declare in the Apostles' Creed, is we have a suffering servant. A suffering servant. The creed statement is, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Now, what's really interesting about the creed, I think, is that it spends literally zero time on what happens in Jesus' life between his miraculous birth and his suffering and crucifixion. There's no description in between of the miracles that we should believe in. There's no walking on water that we should believe in. There's no healing the blind man that we should believe in. There's no description of any of the good teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. None of those things take place. We, we don't see any of that in the creed. It goes literally from the birth of Jesus Christ, which was miraculous, to his suffering and death and burial. It just jumps from one thing to the next. Now, Pastor Ben did a really good job last week of covering the humanity of Jesus. God is fully man. God is fully uh, God in Jesus Christ, fully divine. But these teachings on signs and wonders, you just don't see those things in the Apostles' Creed. And they're, they're not there for a reason. And I don't know if you remember on the first week, when we jumped into the Apostles' Creed, we talked about maps. The idea that I can put a destination, like I had to go to Union Mills yesterday. I'd never been to Union Mills. That's where I had to go. So I had literally the luxury of pulling out my phone, typing in the address, and there was a lot of cool. I'd never driven this path that way off of Highway 6 a little bit out in the countryside, a little nice country road and all this kind of pretty area. And I saw all these signs, these peripheral signs. I'm like, ooh, there's a conservation area. I can't. I got to be there at this time. Ooh, there's this. Oh, wow. I'm on the right path. Ooh, no. All of these things, these ancillary things along the way. Ultimately, I just needed the major milestones to make sure I got to where I was supposed to be, okay? Particularly where I was supposed to be on time. (laughs) And so what, what a map does for us is it clarifies those important junctures, those important intersections to remind us that we're on the right path home. We're on the right path home. The good news of the gospel 
is not just personalized prophecies. Uh, it's not just all of these different things that you see along the journey. It's these major, major milestones. And here's the deal. <clears throat> without the miraculous birth, without the suffering and death, and without what we're going to look at next week, the resurrection, the healings, the miracles, the signs and wonders, um, the, all the different things that we look at, those just become the good works of a good man. All of his teachings, they just become the good works of a good man. But we don't have just a good working good man in Jesus. We have a great God. That's who we have in Jesus Christ. A great God. And what we see today is that when we say we believe in Jesus, we're saying we believe in the one who suffered. Who suffered. Now historically, Jesus' death his burial, his crucifixion, all of those different things, those are uncontroversial elements of Jesus. Christians and non-Christians throughout the ages all agree that there was a guy who was born and he died at the hands of a government and a corrupt religious system, and his name was Jesus. Okay, there's no differentiation. There's, there's historical fact about that. What is the sticking point for people when it comes down to this is the suffering of a cross. And we're going to come back to that here in a bit. This is the humiliation of God. But more specifically, this is a God who identified with the human condition, with you and with me. His life was not one of prosperity. It was not one of favor. It was a life of suffering. It was a life of affliction. He was born in some backwater, raised in some backwater town. He was acquainted with grief, Scripture tells us. He knew hunger. He knew thirst. He knew what betrayal was. He knew what rejection was. He knew what it was to be lied about. He knew all of these different things. The sticking point, though, is the cross. And we're going to come back to that. As we walk through what we're going to look at today in this section of the Apostles' Creed, what we're introduced to is a guy named Pontius Pilate. Of all the things in the creed, you're looking, and wow, here's a guy that gets immortalized in the Apostles' Creed. Pontius Pilate. Why is he in there? How did this guy get into this creed of what we say we believe? One of the reasons is this roots everything that we say we believe to a specific time and a specific place. And the mention of Pontius Pilate roots it in history. It roots it in history for us. He was a tool in the hands of an empire. He was a player in the political colonialist machine of the day. That's who Pontius Pilate was, which is a reminder that Jesus was murdered by an empirical government that had married itself with religion, and that ought to give us pause. That ought to give us pause. Other religions, they might use government to you know, legislate and enforce religious practice, but followers of Jesus know that spiritual birth brings real life in Christ. Spiritual birth. Pilate's mention in the creed reminds us that this is a real event in actual history with historical figures. The passion of the Christ happened. It happened. The good news of the gospel isn't just personalized prophecies, 
so you can realize your best self. It's, it's not those things. It's definitely not about how God wants to prosper you as the evidence of his love for you. That's not what this is about. The good news involves suffering. How do you feel about that? A central act of Jesus' life was not when he walked on water. The central act of Jesus' life is not when he turned loaves and fishes into enough to feed five to 10,000 people. As amazing as, that, as amazing as that detour off of the road is, and it reinforces who Jesus is, that is not the central defining thing to believe in about Jesus. The central act of Jesus culminates in, literally, his suffering. Suffering may not sell, and I, I totally get that, but when we say we believe in the suffering of Jesus under Pontius Pilate, we are declaring we believe in an actual historical event where suffering is modeled as a part of the way home. Are you doing okay? The suffering that we're talking about included something called crucifixion. And I get this is the kind of stuff we talk about at Easter time. I'm not a normal dude, so... Hope you're okay with that. Jesus was murdered on a cross that was intended for criminals. Naked for hours, probably with nails in his hands and in his feet, exposed to the elements. It was a slow death. It was a, it was a, it was a gross, excruciating death, uh, which it was meant to be because onlookers would look on and potential would-be criminals or enemies of the state were to learn their lesson by seeing what was taking place. Stay in your lane. But the key in all of this suffering and death of Jesus Christ is this happened willingly. It happened willingly. We have a suffering, and here's the word, servant. We have a suffering servant. In fact, on that cross, listen closely, his life between the mile markers was on full display. In other words, we have the birth and we have the beginning of the suffering and the death and the resurrection and all that stuff. The in-between that's missing in the Apostles' Creed is actually on full display in the word suffering. On the cross, he showed love. In his suffering, he showed compassion. Laying down life for a friend, he showed humility, forgiveness, patience, tenderness. All of that he showed on that cross. And he did it in death as well. So not only did God identify in Jesus Christ with human suffering, he also very tangibly, in, in a very real way, identified with human death. Human death. We believe, when we, when we say the creed, we say we believe we have a suffering Savior who died for our redemption, for the whole world. It's why we face death differently. We have a confident hope that Jesus has actually gone before us into death. And, and just for good measure, the creedal statement says this, he descended into hell. Have you ever heard that statement and been like, that one's a little different. And Jesus descended into hell. It's an interesting phrase. The word hell here refers to a place of the dead. A place of the dead. And it's included in the creed for a really, really important reason. To rephrase it, first of all, one of the reasons is there was a big argument in the day, uh, and this is the beginning days of Christianity, 
There was a lot of um, heresy. There was a lot of all kinds of different stuff going on. And they needed to make it clear that Jesus was dead, dead. <laughs> he wasn't, this wasn't a pause button in the life of Jesus for three days, and then God hit the play button again, and Jesus came back to life. That's, that's not what happened. God died, died. That's literally what the translation leads to, is that Jesus didn't just die, but he died to death even. He died, died. He was fully dead. He entered into the very thing that you and I will enter into at some point, full death. Okay. He was not sent to death. That's the other important thing here. He voluntarily suspended his power, all of the things that Satan tempted him with back in the wilderness for those 40 days. He suspended all of that to die to death, and he did it for us. He did that for us, which leads back to what I mentioned earlier, the sticking point, the cross. Again, um, historians agree that there was a man named Jesus, first century, born, arrested, tried, killed on a cross. He was buried. There are all kinds of documents outside of Scripture that support that, and that's not the issue. But our declaration as followers of Jesus, as we unite our voices is not just a declaration that we believe in facts about Jesus. That's not what we're saying. We live by faith. We live by faith, which means that there's something going on in the death and the burial of Jesus Christ, his entrance into death for us, that we believe by faith. So what is it that we believe by faith? Well, what the facts point to is that Jesus, as our way home at the welcome of a loving father, comes by way of suffering. And that's, that's complicated even further by Jesus' own words to his followers as he was living. So back in 2003, um, there's a bunch of thieves. They broke into a church uh, of the Holy Cross in midtown Manhattan. And uh, when they broke into that church, they brought some tools with them, and that, that picture that you see of Jesus is in kind of the vestibule of the church, and there's a box below where you can submit prayer cards and different things. Those thieves broke in, and they actually took Jesus off the cross and stole the statue of Jesus and left the cross. They left the cross. And the New York Times was interviewing the janitor uh, after all of this happened, because they, they stole some other things, but they took Jesus off of the cross and stole the statue of Jesus. And uh, the janitor said, essentially, I don't get it. If you're going to take Jesus, you take the cross too. That's what he said. So I get this. I, um, I like the figure of Jesus, his compassion. I like his care, his teaching, his ethics. Uh, I don't think anybody would argue that if people were more like Jesus, there's a lot of things in this world that would not happen. That wouldn't happen. Billions, billions of people who would literally never walk through the door of a church and even have huge issues with, with God. Still, there's something about Jesus. There's something about Jesus. The figure of Jesus. It's the cross that's the problem. It's the cross. The cruciform Jesus. If we say we believe 
in a suffering servant. We have to reconcile what that suffering servant says to us. Matthew 16, 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's one thing to sing about the blood of Jesus that was shed for me. It's a whole other thing to shed blood on our own in response. We like the forgiveness we get from the cross. Being conformed to the cross, though, is a different story. One month after Jesus went missing from the cross at the Holy Cross Church in New York, on September 23rd, actually, 2003, they found Jesus. Uh, the thieves brought him back and stuck him up against the wall in the alley next to the church. They returned the Jesus that they took down from the cross. And here's the blunt truth. If our goal is to be like Jesus, we have to do what people don't naturally do. We have to deny ourselves. We have to deny ourselves. The very self that we are constantly being told to coddle, to preserve, protect, we're told to give that, to deny ourselves and pick up a cross, to follow him. And that's a huge ask, isn't it? It's a big ask. I know probably this much of the pain some of you guys are going through right now in your life with whatever it is. It's a big ask in those minutes to suspend yourself, deny yourself. I know that's hard. But believing in Jesus, a Jesus that comes with a cross, requires some conscious steps, one of which being answering the question, what needs to be crucified? What needs to die? What needs to be buried in you? At what intersections on that map, what intersections will you need to make a conscious choice? If you want to know the fullness of his life, those are things that you need to surrender, that you need to give. There is no crossless Savior. And I think one of the realities when we recite the Apostles' Creed and we get to this point is we recognize there's no crossless Christianity either. There's no crossless following of Jesus. As we think about those questions, Jesus does call us to a table. Uh, as we approach this table today, this communion table, I want to encourage you to ask yourself, what needs to be crucified in you today? Can we pray? God, your invitation to come and feast in your presence is just a taste of the love that you extend to us every day. By your very nature, you seek us out. You search for ways to connect us and connect with us. So by your grace, we recognize the holiness that you desire to impart in us. You're the Holy One. You're the God of justice. You're the God of love. Heaven and earth are full of your wonder.